Welcome back to Meet Kevin Report, episode number 16 already. This is incredible. And all of those of you who wonder, how can you make sure you get all notifications? Because I keep getting comments from many of you. Download the Meet Kevin app. You can go into the Apple or Android app store, download Meet Kevin app, just type in Meet Kevin. You'll see it there. And that way you can customize your notifications to make sure you don't miss anything on the channel. Keep in mind, YouTube limits the notifications that are sent to three notifications in a 24-hour period, and I think y'all know I post a little more than three times in a 24-hour period. So if you want those notifications, like for example, when I go live for uh, the Jerome Powell coverage at 12.40 p.m. Eastern Time later today, if you'd like that notification, <laughs> make sure you have uh, that app, because just hitting the bell here, even if you literally hit the bell on YouTube and press send me all notifications, they will still limit you to three in 24 hours. Even though you said all, they will still only give you some. Welcome to the life of a creator on YouTube. The Super Bowl, for the first time in 30 years, will actually be allowing other alcohol brands to advertise outside of Anheuser-Busch and Budweiser. This is because they gave up their exclusive rights, or after which they've had for over 30 years, right at about the same time the Super Bowl lost a ton of advertising contracts via companies like FTX. That's right, maybe the Super Bowl should get canceled as well because they had sponsored, been sponsored by FTX. But in the meantime, now those crypto ads might be getting filled in with beer ads, which nobody knows beer much like I do. Oh, this is coffee. <laughs> anyway, Molson Heineken say they've been waiting decades for the opportunity to invest at the Super Bowl. And uh, at the same time, as you've got crypto companies leaving sort of that amount of uh, advertising on the table for other companies to take, you now apparently have Binance suspending deposits and withdrawals temporarily of U.S. dollars. Now, they say only about 0.01% of their monthly active users actually use those on and off ramps for USD. This is a partnership Binance had with Signature Bank. And uh, even though Signature Bank hasn't provided any kind of commentary on this, it's entirely possible that the reason you're seeing these sort of limits to USD transactions rather than people bringing in stable coins, which they usually do to Binance, might be because... Uh, the United States government's investigations are leading to some kind of requirements that U.S. transactions be paused uh, for uh, via USD. That's that's just speculation at this point in terms of why Binance hasn't exactly told us why they said it should be back soon. Uh, we'll see. At the same time, you've got uh, Apple, and this was actually quite interesting. It was just two nights ago. Uh, two nights ago, I was at uh, the Cheesecake Factory with with my team. And uh, we had talked about how, you know, one of the beautiful things about Apple's pee-pee, uh, uh, Apple's pricing power, is this idea that you could essentially give iPhones away at cost. Now, they don't, right? They've got like over a 40, 50% gross margin. It's incredible. But you could, in theory, give away iPhones at cost and just try to get people into your network of devices and buying things like you know, Apple Workout, Apple Music, Apple Life, whatever, right? The Apple services, uh, cloud, whatever, and, uh, and, and probably be substantially profitable. You just get the cost of your devices covered and then sell services, basically. Uh, and so I, I thought of this as uh, this idea that it wouldn't surprise me to see larger discounting or cheaper prices on iPhones in the future, as an example, uh, unless, of course, it's true that what Tim Cook said was accurate, that, well, the reason we couldn't sell as many iPhones was solely because of supply chains. Now, I don't really believe that. 
I think uh, Tim Cook in the past has been a little evasive on earnings calls. Uh, so I, I think, sure, while it's nice to be able to say that supply chains sandbagged iPhone sales, I think there's probably some limit to how much people actually want to stretch for a new phone. And so sure enough, yesterday we hear that Apple is now providing hundreds of dollars of discounts on iPhones in China after the Lunar New Year. Like, womp, womp, womp. <laughs> I mean, it's totally normal, somewhat expected, and still good for the company. You want to get the inventory off the shelf, especially before you get new models out. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's solely a supply issue uh, at Apple, although that's an easy thing to blame. Ron DeSantis in Florida apparently just had a bill filed in the state Senate that would give him full control over the special board for Reedy Creek and the Reedy Creek Improvement Discount uh, District. This is the district that sort of governs Disney and Disney World uh, and the various different theme parks there. Uh, and uh, the individuals who would then be appointed uh, to that board would be approved by the Senate. This is just a bill and a proposal that would give uh, the governor of Florida a lot of power over that Disney's, uh, Disney district. Who knows if it'll ever actually get passed, but it's kind of incredible seeing the amount of tension between Disney and, uh, well, Florida politicians after the, uh, the, the massive backlash of Disney first staying silent on the uh, quote-unquote don't say gay bill. That's not actually what it's called, but that's the thesis. And it's basically this idea that uh, in elementary schools and under a certain age, children shouldn't be talked to about sexual preference or gender identity. And that became nicknamed the don't say gay bill. And anyway, Ron DeSantis, uh, uh, first Disney was silent on it. Then Disney came out and said, hey, we don't support the bill. And that led to a lot of political backlash from the existing administration in Florida. And, uh, and, and a lot of uh, ideas about potentially removing Disney's special tax privileges, though that's also led to sort of countervailing arguments that, well, if you remove Disney's special tax district where they're paying for their own police and fire department, you might make all the property owners around Disney start having to chip in via higher property taxes. And is that fair to those owners? So welcome to politics. It's always a give and take. Joe Biden has his State of the Union tonight, we're expecting for him to talk about a, uh, or, or call for a quadrupling of a taxes on corporate stock buybacks and some form of minimum tax on billionaires' wealth. Most of this is likely just to be talking and yapping, and quite frankly, it's relatively unlikely that any of these things that Joe Biden talks about tonight are actually going to become a reality mostly because now we have Kevin McCarthy in control of the House. And even when Democrats were in full control, it was very difficult for them to get anything done, given the 50-50 balance of power that they had in the Senate. Uh, that, was, uh, that was really hamstrung by uh, uh, Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin, uh, who were pretty solid anchors for the Democratic agenda. Uh, of course, a lot of folks saw that as the perfect way to moderate the Democrats' control. But anyway, uh, so keep in mind that whatever Joe Biden calls for in a State of the Union tonight was probably just going to be talk, and we don't actually expect any of it to become a reality. Though, do consider that his State of the Union today could be sort of an introduction for what platform he will run on in 2024. And I think it'll also be a moment where the United States tries to evaluate, is Joe Biden even capable of running in 2024? It seems like, at least at this point, uh, by uh, based on at least some polling conducted by Bloomberg, 
a lot of Democrats might not actually support Joe Biden running again. They kind of think of Joe Biden as a one and done. So we'll, we'll see if the State of the Union actually changes anything. Over 5,000 now fear dead in Turkey and Syria following the devastating earthquakes there. AI, uh, in the AI world, you've got uh, now Google announcing the release of uh, the chat GPT competitor named Bard that'll apparently be ready in coming weeks. Keep in mind, uh, Google has been working on language learning for a substantial amount of time. And one of the easiest ways you could see that is if you ever use Gmail and you're typing in Gmail, you can actually see the AI try to pre-fill in your email for you in terms of, hey, just press tab and it'll pre-fill what we think you're going to say next. There were reports that this uh, Google email generator could basically write the whole email for you, but they were worried that if they showed how powerful the Google AI chat was that people would get freaked out. This also comes after an individual developer who worked on uh, Lambda, which is the internal uh, project name for Google's uh, artificial intelligence. Lambda standing for Language Model Google Developed uh, yeah, <laughs> AI basically, Lambda. Uh, anyway, uh, this, uh, there was a particular developer who was working on the project who leaked that he worried the AI was so powerful that it had actually become sentient. Now that is kind of like your worst case scenario if you've ever watched the movie iRobot or if you've got any kind of fears about robots taking over the world. You don't want to hear that robots or any kind of artificial intelligence is becoming sentient because it sends the signal that they can think on their own is what sentient means. So uh, that's, that's, uh, that'll be quite interesting to see how ChatGPT compares to Google's Bard. I did think the name Bard was kind of lame. They could have come up with something a lot cooler. I kind of think of a Bard as like going back into like Oblivion Elder Scroll or something like really like, I don't know, maybe even like, a, uh, oh gosh, what was, um, what was the game called? Ever EverQuest. You know, you'll run around as I, I don't know. It just seems like a, an old school kind of name. So I'm not a big fan of Bard, uh, but it's probably still better than Baidu's announcement. Their bot is called Ernie, and their uh, their stock was up like 13% on the idea that they're also coming out with some kind of AI chatbot. Baidu is the Chinese, one of the largest internet companies in the world. It's basically the Chinese search engine. It's kind of like, think of it like Chinese Google. But anyway, so you've got Google coming out with a competitor named Bard. You've got Baidu coming out with Ernie. And you still got ChatGPT, which is very annoying to pronounce. And I always want to call it ChatGPT. But, but anyway, I don't know. It, it all seems crazy. Uh, the good news is the beneficiary out of all of this is the consumer because it should make search a whole lot more functional, especially if we can incorporate, like Microsoft is trying to do, ChatGPT into Bing. Now that would be pretty neat. Now if you can incorporate ChatGPT into Bing, oh boy, you could actually make Bing a functional search engine, because right now it just doesn't seem that great at all. Just my take. I mean, may maybe I'm being a little aggressive here, but just my take. Now, a lot of folks are, are uh, you know, uh, rightfully so wondering, hey, you know, what's a way to get exposure to uh, companies uh, that uh, invest in this sort of AI technology? How can I get myself some, some stock in this AI? Uh, and I frequently looked at Microsoft as a potential opportunity for that, but one of the concerns that I have is you have a relatively small exposure uh, to ChatGPT and Microsoft mostly because of the size of Microsoft. So it's really going to be dependent on what Microsoft can do with this. Think about it, a $10 billion investment into ChatGPT by Microsoft 
really represents uh, somewhere around, let's see, it's a $1.9 billion company. You're, you're talking about less than half of, of 1% basically going into uh, this uh, this this particular company and it's it's about one half of one percent. So for example, every one hundred dollars you put into Microsoft stock, about fifty cents would go into Chat GPT. Uh, and this has really led me to the idea that uh, I probably don't want to be the person who's investing directly into Google for the sake of getting exposure to their AI or Baidu for the sake of getting exposure to their AI or Microsoft for the sake of getting exposure to Chat GPT. I'd almost rather invest in sort of the backbone architecture. And I've talked about this before, so I don't want to seem redundant, but I'm a big fan of investing in chips. And I really believe, like the Wall Street Journal says, that chips are probably the next gold. Uh, and that over the next decade, we'll see chips essentially be uh, sort of like the next gold rush in America and in countries throughout the world, whether it's Europe fighting for more chip manufacturing, which new factories are being built in Europe. You've got like, example, for example, the Taiwan Semiconductors is building a factory. I believe it's in Germany. It's somewhere in Europe. But I believe it's in Germany to manufacture automotive chips, like 20 to 28 nanometer chips. You've got uh, a, a multiple plants being built in Arizona and massive expansions coming to Taiwan Semiconductors plants in Arizona. You've got Intel potentially spending up to $100 billion investing in chips just in the Ohio region and, and, and various areas throughout America. I mean, you've got the amount of money that you have flowing into this is absolutely insane. This is a piece by the Wall Street Journal, and uh, this is their current estimate. I mean, there could be more announcements already, but just based on projects announced, the Wall Street Journal sees U.S. semiconductor investments in the next 10 years sitting at $186 billion. That's just the United States. That's not even global. Uh, that represents about the cost of around $29 billion gigafactories from Tesla. So putting that, uh, that sort of into perspective, it's, it's pretty massive. And so that's where, it, it, when, when I'm generally thinking about AI exposure stocks, I think to myself, boy, uh, you're, the more powerful AI gets, the more powerful compute processes you're going to require. And the companies that provide that are your sort of picks and shovel style companies, <laughs> which are all the way at the beginning. You could think about glass manufacturers. Uh, you could think about uh, uh, chip manufacturing equipment companies. So uh, for example, you could think of uh, 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 Carl, uh, Carl Zeiss for lenses. These folks stick a lot, a lot of money into glass and mirror production that goes into the actual chip equipment manufacturing with companies like ASML, which has over a 90% market share for advanced chip manufacturing. Then you look at companies like uh, Taiwan Semiconductors that buys a ton of these chips. Apple in their earnings call bragging about how happy they expect to be the major customer for Taiwan Semiconductors in uh, for their Arizona plant. <laughs> this is Apple bragging about Taiwan semiconductors in their earnings call. That's actually pretty impressive. Usually you don't actually see that. Take a look at this right here at the bottom of the earnings call. What do you have? Uh, here it is. Uh, I We don't know exactly at this point what that'll be. This happens to be uh, production and Chips Act and, and the impact of that. But we're all in in terms of being the largest customer for Taiwan Semiconductors in Arizona, and we're very proud to take part in that. And Apple's bragging about Taiwan Semiconductors, right? 
So, uh, and then of course, after you look at chip manufacturers or chip manufacturing equipment, you wanna look at chip designers. Who are your big chip designers? Well, obviously, uh, NVIDIA, AMD, massive chip designers. Qualcomm's got a little bit more exposure to sort of 5G and mobile. Uh, as opposed to maybe server and data center like you might see at uh, AMD or NVIDIA. Uh, then you could look at a company uh, like, uh, like Intel, who's gotten completely rid of their memory division, and they're essentially trying to deprecate their PC division and get into really uh, enterprise and, and servers. Uh, and, and Intel potentially looking at uh, looking like a company that's just uh, potentially as uh, as inexpensive as AMD. Both of those selling for a relatively low valuation, whereas Taiwan Semiconductors and Nvidia selling a little bit more expensively. But uh, the amount of money that Intel expects to invest in in Ohio is is insane, and they're either going to spend that money and they're going to win, or they'll go bankrupt because they're a company that has failed to adapt. A lot of people get frustrated when I mention AMD because, or when I mention Intel, because they think of Intel as sort of this legacy company that won't be able to adapt. Yet, what I think is so smart about what uh, Intel is doing is they're actually building their manufacturing fabs, uh, fabrication plants. Uh, to be agnostic of what kind of chip architecture you're using. Now, if you're unfamiliar with that, there are basically three core chip architectures. Uh, there, uh, and one is sort of under the umbrella of the other, but for the sake of argument, we'll just separate it out here. So you have x86, which is really the uh, Intel-based uh, chip architecture. Then you have ARM, which is uh, a, a RISC machine. That's actually what the uh, RM stands for. And RISC is a type of chip architecture. And then there's RISC-V, which is more of your open source version of RISC, which these are very similar to each other. ARM is deemed to be very good for mobile. This deemed to be better for enterprise maybe and, and uh, PC at the moment. But then again, you've got each side trying to innovate uh, to be the best chip architecture. But what Intel is saying is, look, we don't care what architecture you use. We just want you to hire us to make your chips. And this is why they're getting contracts with the Department of Defense. This is why they're investing $100 billion into new fabs in America, because they don't care if you want x86 chips, RISC-V chips, or ARM chips. They don't care what kind of architecture you want. They just want to make your chips. Uh, and so I, I see Intel as potentially a decent play over the next decade, uh, as long as they can actually garner uh, that, uh, that, that manufacturing prowess. Now, interestingly, Intel right now manufactures some of their chips with Taiwan semiconductors. And so they are really calling up ASML to try and to, get, to try to get as many of the new ultraviolet uh, machines that they can get, uh, their lithography machines, so they too can manufacture advanced chips. Three nanometers, four nanometers. You know, by the end of the decade, we'll probably be down to one or two nanometers. By the middle of the next decade, we may be at half a nanometer. And at some point, it's just going to come down to uh, not this transistor size, which is what nanometer measures, uh, nanometers measure, but rather uh, just who makes the most efficient chip. And that's where, to me, maybe rather than investing in solely the designers, you also invest in the factories. So again, that's where I think Intel TSMC, but then I also think uh, NVIDIA, Apple, uh, and AMD as your designers. Uh, it, so, so that's sort of my take. I'd rather be investing in that segment than solely be dumping my money into Microsoft and Google, who are substantially more exposed to the ad business. 
So those are some of my thoughts. Although you're seeing substantial investments go into uh, machine learning and and potential uh, future uses uh, at Facebook as well, uh, obviously at uh, divisions within Apple as well. So there's a lot of great opportunities to invest in artificial intelligence, but I'm afraid to just run into certain companies solely because they say, oh, hey, we, we have AI. <laughs> we do want to stay away from that. So uh, that's, uh, yeah, ASML, absolutely. I see you in the comments here. Yeah, we've been talking about ASML. ASML has a, an over 90% market share of the advanced lithography uh, device for manufacturing these. Uh, now, they are actually banned from selling their newest model of advanced chip making equipment f to China. China's obviously very pissed about this. ASML is able to sell their older generation lithography devices to China, which, which they do, and they sell a lot of them to China. But China's like, well, we want the new stuff too. <clears throat> and now part of this is obviously because uh, China and the United States have a lot of geopolitical tensions. Not only do they have those tensions now, but they've had those tensions in the past before. China, for example, stole uh, the plans for our F-35 fighter jet, and then a few years later ended up announcing and releasing a jet that was pretty damn similar to our F-35, which is really frustrating and annoying because it's like, hey, you really are hacking our stuff. They've hacked into travel logs at Marriott. They've hacked into uh, our healthcare systems. Uh, China's really good at basically trying to steal our stuff. Now, uh, in, in fairness, they're trying to catch up, and some might make the economic argument that, hey, you know what, maybe, uh, maybe that's a good thing because it forces both sides to innovate more, but... I, I, I don't think anyone getting hacked by China is necessarily something that we want to even remotely suggest is a good thing. But these are definitely some of the plays that I'm curious about. Now, I'm less curious about companies like, uh, like for example, Pinterest. Pinterest was absolutely, like, I, I look, Pinterest is a style of search engine. So some people say, hey, what about Pinterest for AI, right? Could, could there potentially be an opportunity in, in search within Pinterest to basically lead people to spend money? And I hate to say it, but Pinterest scares me. Uh, the reason Pinterest scares me is I took a very brief look at their earnings presentation. And look at this. They grew revenue by about 3.6% year over year, but they grew sales and marketing by 66%. In my opinion, this is a way that you're basically showing that the company has no way of uh, any kind of operating leverage. They have no operating leverage. Operating leverage is where your OPEX can stay stable, but you can actually grow your revenue. That's what operating leverage is. Well, this company has the opposite of operating leverage. Basically, to maintain their revenue at near flat, they had to increase their sales and marketing 66%. That's scary. That doesn't send a good signal to me. Now, the company initially dropped pretty decently after earnings, but it's since recovered. Uh, it's actually almost completely recovered to about flatten the pre-market, maybe down as much as 1%, but that's not a big deal. It initially fell over 10%. And I think what's happening in the market is you're getting a lot of earnings that are happening, and then the earnings come out, and companies, or investors rather, institutions, whatever, are like, oh, that's not as bad as we thought it was. <laughs> but it's still bad when you actually look at the numbers relative to other companies. So uh, I don't know. For me, I stay away from things like Pinterest. I want chips. That's what I want. That's where I think the big peepee -pee is in chips and chip manufacturing. 
And the beauty is we're actually going through sort of this chip trough right now where everybody's ranting about how uh, chips are in oversupply and PC uh, sales year over year are down 32% and everyone's missing. This is true. Revenue's been missing. Taiwan Semiconductor, Samsung, uh, AMD, the numbers have been coming down. The stocks have actually been going up though because the numbers aren't that bad. And these are amazing companies for the next decade. We just sort of have to get through that sort of COVID uh, trough, if you will, the post-COVID trough. Uh, and, and, and for me, I, I, I can't see pricing power anywhere else. Like, I don't care what software company you are, you need chips, you need compute power. And that compute power is going to get more and more powerful over time. Not only is that compute power going to get more and more powerful over time, but the demand for that computing power is going to get more and more powerful. Uh, you know, I, I, I always, ran into this idea and this challenge that at some point things will just be good enough uh, and maybe we don't need a new iPhone every single year, right? Which we could make that argument. But boy, oh boy, you look back a few generations, you look, you go back maybe three years on Apple laptops or even computer, regular PCs or iPhones, you're like, it just can't run the stuff as well as it used to, or at least this is what it feels like. And often this is because we're getting more and more intensive uh, uh, applications that demand more and more compute power uh, in terms of what we're able to do, the way we're able to collaborate with other individuals. It's, it's phenomenal. There's so much potential and I'm so, so excited about what's to come. Especially, I mean, think about the transition even to uh, augmented reality. Now, a lot of people are like, Gavin, augmented reality is BS. Virtual reality is like what you, the headset you buy for Christmas and you use it, you know, one or two days in a row and then you never use it again. Yes, fact, true. But eventually, augmented reality and virtual reality actually won't give you a headache, and it actually won't suck. And boy, I can't even imagine the kind of compute power that we'll need for 360 degree, uh, actually quality uh, virtual reality relative to what, what we deal with today. Uh, it's, uh, it's going to be pretty dang impressive, uh, and it's gonna require a lot of compute power. And of course, that's where you could also invest in batteries because batteries will become even more important as well. So, uh, and that's that's exactly why, you know, almost as if on cue, you have uh, Mr. Steve over here suggesting lithium explorers have been running like crazy. 50% moves in one day. And shouts out multiple different nickel plays here like SPC, FNI, NICU, and copper plays like FDT and ATX. You know, the interesting thing about the explorers is you're kind of, it, to me, it's almost like you're, you're betting on gold explorers. Like, oh, I, I hope the person I bet on finds gold. And then when they don't, they go bankrupt. You know, it's like, oh dear. Uh, is there, is there a particular pickaxe for lithium? <laughs> uh, that's, that's whom I want to invest in or just invest in the battery uh, assemblers, whether that's Panasonic or even battery storage companies like Tesla, Enphase, Generac, SolarEdge. Uh, you know, that, that might be a way to uh, invest uh, in that. But then again, you know, look, even, uh, even Energizer, I don't think anybody's ever considered looking at the Energizer earnings report, but I did. Uh, and uh, even Energizer is complaining about higher costs for nickel and lithium and how it's impacting their margins. So, you know, all of these battery manufacturers, even though they can put batteries together, doesn't necessarily mean uh, they're gonna be profitable putting their batteries together. So, uh, you know, something to keep in mind. All right, let's hop on over here. What do we got, Bloomberg? Which means monetary policy ultimately is too tight. 
or will the cuts be there because we're going to get this real, real roll-off in economic growth? And I think <clears> those two things are different because if I'm long risk assets on this idea that I get cuts in the future, well, I think cuts in the future on growth collapsing isn't actually right. bullish. I think cuts in the future because inflation is coming down quicker than anticipated, that's pretty good news. They're not the same thing. And this is what Christina and Kentmany was also talking about in terms of can you price in rate cuts and a soft landing at the same time? I mean, I, I look at it, and, and again, I think the thing we haven't talked enough about, we'll get to this through the hour and, frankly, through the week, is Lisa's observation on where Treasury bills are, are trading. Oh. John, to get the data check starting here, I, I'm just going to look at an equity market that's not in sync with the bond market. Equities flat, bonds moving. Equities up a tenth of 1%, yields down about a basis point, but a big move over the last couple of days on a two-year yield, on a two-year now through 440, on a 10-year back through 360. Yeah, I mean, they're not wrong here. The uh, the moves in the bond market have been nutty. I mean, absolutely nuts. The fact that the 10-year shot back up to 3.63, not good for real estate. Also creates tighter financial conditions. But you know what? I'd rather bond yields go up and the stock market go up. <laughs> that way it's like, hey, listen, J-Pal, it's still tight. The goal of tight financial conditions are still tight. You don't need to hike more. Just let the stock market rise. It's been painful enough. Uh, Goldman Financial Conditions Index, by the way, right now sitting, let's see here, five-year break-evens are sitting at 2.37, still rising a little bit. And financial conditions did tighten yesterday as those treasury yields shot up. So we are off the lows uh, over the last, uh, oh boy, we haven't been this low in financial conditions since about September of 2022 which is right around where we sat around June or July. And they did fall a little lower, but uh, they've, they've re-tightened here, so we'll see. Now, uh, another thing that I'd like to at least comment on is a little bit of what's going on with the uh, Andrew Tate situation. So let's take a moment here. Now we got to talk about Andrew Tate. And uh, there's this guy, Mario Nafal, on Twitter, who seems to provide a lot of insights into what's going on with the latest on the Andrew Tate situation. Uh, look, uh, you know, whether, whether you're uh, fighting for the Matrix or against the Matrix, uh, I think it's very clear that uh, everybody in the world deserves to know what is the Romanian government holding Andrew Tate for specifically? What kind of evidence is there? Uh, and this is leading to a, a lot of aggression on both sides. On one side, you have individuals saying, hey, there's plenty of evidence suggesting that, uh, you know, or that, that reiterate allegations of whether it's rape or money laundering, uh, whatever it may be. Uh, and, and, and folks on the other side say, hey, you know, that's just a social media persona. You can't arrest somebody off stuff they say on social media. It's kind of interesting because at the same time, there's this guy, Stephen McCullough, who apparently uh, it, it was was live streaming while he ended up murdering a, a, a girl who was pregnant. But it ends up turning out that that live stream he was playing was just a recording of himself. And he left a bunch of hints like a total idiot in that live stream that... He was, uh, you, you know, basically that this was no time to die. <laughs> I should do a separate video on it. But it's it's crazy. Like, it's terrible to think that, that uh, uh, you know, people post stupid stuff on the Internet. 
And uh, they're almost sort of like hints that, look, I, 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 I'm brazen about the way I commit crimes. Uh, that's what some people are suggesting. Andrew Tate is kind of like, kind of like that to some degree, that, that murderer guy who, who murders somebody but while pretending to be live streaming, while it's just a recording, and at the same time is leaving hints about his criminal activity to sort of like in a macho and brazen way show that off. And so some people are connecting that to Andrew Tate saying, hey, his, what he says online should be taken seriously because you know he actually is uh, doing these things and he's trying to get away with it basically. So here's an interesting sort of important update they say here on the case against Andrew Tate. Uh, and uh, Mario provides a quick recap here. He says before getting into the developments, after initial 30-day detention period in January, Bucharest court extended the Tate's brothers' detention until February 27th. Keep in mind that you can only be detained for about 180 days uh, in in Romania, while and then these have to be extended on 30-day periods. Generally, you, you, you can't be arrested without being charged for a crime. The thesis, though, is that, hey, we are going to charge you with a crime. We have not yet charged you with a crime, but we are going to do so. In the meantime, we're going to detain you because we feel if you are out of jail, you might manipulate or destroy evidence by either talking to people and, make, and, and threatening them and making them not cooperate with authorities or destroying evidence or, or whatever. That's sort of the thesis, but it's leading a lot of uh, people online to get very upset about this idea that, oh, no, Andrew Tate has been taken by the Matrix and uh, he's innocent. Well, uh, I, I think this is a situation where at some point, and, and the demands become louder and louder every day, uh, everybody just needs to see what the evidence is, and, and then people can make up their mind. There are a lot of people, uh, you know, drawing conclusions right now on the internet. There's this one lady who keeps ranting about Andrew Tate, and one of the things that she says is, it's not fair that the government is listening to one person's testimony versus the other. And I'm thinking to myself, how, how, how do you know what the government is actually listening to? <laughs> you know, it, it makes for sort of like a, a, a viral clip uh, for, for this podcast host uh, arguing that uh, uh, the, the Romanian government is uh, wrong for listening to one person's testimony over the other. We have no idea what, what they're looking at or what kind of evidence they have. So that's where one of the things that I look at is I don't think, and, and I'm not sure, right? We'll find out. But... If the Romanian government were to release Andrew Tate and uh, there was no evidence or there were no charges, it would be a massive embarrassment to the Romanian government. Whereas if the Romanian government comes out with a substantial case against Andrew Tate and people look at the evidence and say, wow, this guy really is a bad person, then, uh, then, then, then all of a sudden people will actually look at the Romanian government with respect, right? And I don't think the Romanian government wants to be embarrassed. So I, I don't think... You know, just by considering that solely, I don't think it looks very good for Andrew Tate. Especially since the judge explained his decision here, the capacity of the defendants to exercise permanent psychological control over their victims, including by resorting to a constant acts of violence, uh, is, is one of basically explanations for why they're being held. Their attorney, Atina Glandin, who's previously represented boxer Mike Tyson and singers Chris Brown and Kesha, have argued or has argued that the detention of the Tates for more than 30 days violates their international human rights. She's actually been on multiple interviews. Uh, she was just on with Piers Morgan as well. And uh, she talks about how basically these, uh, these, these detentions are violations of international human rights. And uh, I mean, to some degree, without evidence, it is a little frustrating. In her talks, though, she suggests that, well, it's frustrating not for us publicly not to see what the evidence is, 
Uh, and it's it, it, she also apparently is not getting that evidence either. But uh, one of the things she talks about is this, how this investigation has been going on since April. And she somewhat implies that they've been uh, basically held against their will since April when the reality is they were arrested December 29th. Don't get me wrong, that's still a long time to be arrested without uh, evidence, but uh, let's keep going here. She said a lack of evidence was shown for the fact that, or by the fact that there's still no charges despite the brothers being in custody for a month and police investigating since April, exactly. Uh, Glandon also said that Tristan Tate, which she implied that a little differently on, on her video. Uh, Glandon also said that Tristan Tate has been unable to meet his new three-week-old child. She has also denied the brothers could flee Romania, even though the judge is suggesting uh, maybe their passports, uh, you know, could be removed or they could go under house arrest or whatever. Uh, this is basically her way of saying, hey, just let them out of jail. Just, you know, keep them locked up at home or whatever. Despite the brothers facing no trial, uh, some providers are already starting to red label them, in effect, sanctioning them from using the banking system. So this is sort of like restricting their ability to transact uh, at, at, at banks. For example, comply.advantage already displays a bunch of red flags on Andrew Tate's name under various categories. This is sort of uh, when the finance uh, when finance institutions operate with customers, uh, they decide whether or not to restrict certain activities uh, based on red flags that come up in, in international reports. In a video released in January, the brother's lawyer, their old lawyer, complains that the Tate brothers are being prosecuted on the basis of extrajudicial evidence. This basically means uh, reports that were not requested by the courts. In other words, there's this, and this has been what's circulating, is this idea that, you know, some psychologist has made uh, the conclusion that these individuals are unsafe to others. Uh, and that uh, a judge shouldn't be holding them against their will solely because of the report of an individual or, or uh, multiple other individuals. Again, this is where I think uh, I don't believe the Romanian court wants to be embarrassed here, and I would hope that if they're actually holding folks uh, against their, their, their will, uh, clearly, and in violation of potential international human rights laws, that uh, they actually have substantial uh, evidence that maybe the world just doesn't know about. Because really what we have right now, uh, or, or what people believe about the Tates, are just sort of random uh, clips of, of him suggesting uh, things that just don't sound very good. Now, a lot of people say these suggestions or these clips online that don't sound very good are really just him being uh, Andrew Tate. That's his social media personality, right? And you and you can't charge him for crimes for things that he's talking about online, whether that's uh, recordings like this. Let's take a listen here for a moment here. You didn't like that I was thinking I can do whatever I want to. That's what it is. I'm the smartest person on this planet. That's a voice... We'll fast forward here a little bit. I just want to get to the clips here. Uh, shout out to the Law and Crime Network for this. Uh, I'm kind of just skipping past your commentary and adding my own, but thank you for the audio here. Shout out to you guys. Go subscribe to the Law and Crime Network. Because the, the more you didn't like it, the more I enjoyed it. I loved how much you hated it. Turn me on. Seriously so offended I strangled you a little bit. You didn't f***ing pass out. Chill the f*** out. Jesus Christ. I thought you were cool. What's wrong with you? Yeah, so some of that kind of audio that sort of implies, uh, or, or I mean, basically it's it's cut up audio, but it pretty clearly says, hey, oh, you didn't like that I R-A-P, you know, you. Uh, that that it just, these things don't sound very good. Now, is that evidence enough to hold somebody without charges? Probably not, because, you know, there are two sides to every story. And, uh, and of course, we've seen plenty of, 
of, of people come out and actually defend the Tate brothers, saying, no, no, like, this is just play. This is all just, you know, for the show. We do this for social media. Tate's a good person. You know, he's done nothing wrong. Uh, that's that's the primary argument we generally get from, from defenders of Tate. Here's uh, what the attorney argues with Piers Morgan. Let's listen in for a moment. How long can that process continue before a charging decision is... pension order there. ...to 180... Uh, ...bellowing his innocence as he's been led in and out of, of these uh, court hearings and so on. Do you believe them? Do you believe that he and his brother are innocent? At this point, Pierce, they've had this investigation going since April. We're now February, and there are not even charges filed against them. So... This is a huge injustice the way we see it. They should not be detained at this point. We did, did you notice she dodged the question? Piers Morgan says, do you believe them? And she goes right into talking about how it's an injustice that they're arrested. Now, don't get me wrong. If I were her, like if I were the Tate's attorneys, I would kind of probably be doing what she's doing. You do the media circuit, right? What you're trying to do is you're trying to build pressure on the Romanian government, right? So you play the media game. You know, you try to go to jail. You get kicked out because you can't visit your client. You go on Piers Morgan and all the shows going, this is an international injustice. It's basically a way for her to pressure the international community to pressure the Romanian government to finally actually release some evidence and some charges or release the individuals, right? Now, one of the things that has been kind of interesting, and we'll play a little bit more of this in just a moment, but one of the things that has been kind of interesting is there's been talk that uh, these individuals, uh, the Tate brothers, well, we, we've known this. We've seen plenty of clips of the Tate brothers come out of a sort of court or, or between court and jail, and, and they'll shout at the cameras. They'll talk to the cameras, and uh, they'll, they'll say things, uh, you know, to, to sort of uh, bolster their case. Like, for example, this clip right here. Take a listen to this. This, is, this has been pretty typical. Watch this. In America, if you're rich, they think you're an actor. In London, if you're rich, they think you're a businessman. In Romania, if you're rich, they think you're a criminal. All right, so in America, if you're rich, uh, you're an actor. In uh, Britain, if you're rich, you're a businessman. And in uh, Romania, if you're rich, you're a criminal. Uh, that's, uh, that's uh, you know, he, and he's made statements like this regularly, right? Regularly has he made statements suggesting uh, that, uh, hey, you know, there's no evidence. But what's interesting is one of the more recent videos of his transportation has actually been completely silent. Look at this. This We'll just play this here and turn the audio up on this too. So you can actually, when they come out, you'll see... They're completely silent. Now, I also want to know how they have, like, so many different compartments in this van. The, like, this van is, like, really impressive. Like, I kind of want one of these. Taxi? You are okay? Tate? Oh, Taxi, Santos, Monday. Now, now that's pretty unusual, right? It's pretty unusual because usually they say something. Now, some some folks are saying that maybe uh, the the judge in the case is very upset that they've now been classified as dangerous prisoners because they try to talk to the media when they travel. Uh, the Tate brothers handed a particular uh, note, for example, to one of the reporters and shouted like, "Here, take this, take this," uh, and 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 that's led to the judge being a little bit upset. 
uh, uh, over essentially their communication with the media, which you're not supposed to do, but uh, it's possible. Maybe that's why they were silent uh, during that moment. Uh, we could keep looking through uh, some of these items here. Uh, here you've got, per the court documents, women were convinced to come from abroad and were misled about the intention of Tate to establish a relationship with those women and either marry them or live with them. At the time when this one particular victim, according to a court document, arrived in Romania, the defendant was not in the country and she was told the injured person uh, that uh, she would not be able to live in the apartment. Okay, a little confusingly written here. Instead, the person would have to live with the person who brought, uh, who bought the plane ticket, picked her up from the airport, and drove her to the building where she was going to live. Blah blah blah. I mean, you you get a lot of sort of this 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 these anecdotes uh, from both sides. I think ultimately uh, the 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 goal here of if there is a preventative arrest, there should be uh, at some point here, hopefully soon, a very clear list of charges that the Tate brothers could actually defend. Right. Uh, now, again, they've hired a new attorney over here, and uh, she's argued, uh, the one that you just saw on the Piers Morgan show, that she's been refused entry to the jail where the Tate brothers are being held. Again, this is part of sort of the media circuit of, like, you got to put pressure on the government. So what do you do? You get kicked out of jail. Uh, then you've got... Uh, some, you know, seizures that happened over the last few days, such as 14 watches being seized, $294,000 of Bitcoin being seized, Bucharest Court of Appeals. Now, it's interesting, this is actually important to know, is it's not just one judge who's holding uh, Andrew Tate against his will. It's now a Court of Appeals rejecting their appeal uh, on the uh, opportunity for the Romanian government to hold them for an additional uh, 30 days. We'll come back to this here in a moment. Uh, and uh, and, and uh, there's a BBC uh, uh, journalist, this guy, Paul Kenyon, and uh, he's planning on releasing a, a detailed documentary or, uh, or interview or, or something tomorrow on February 8th. He talks about how he visited the Tate's house in Bucharest. Aside from this uh, metal sentinel by the front door, he says it's pretty underwhelming an old converted factory near a cemetery surrounded by wasteland doesn't sound uh, doesn't feel like home, the home of a multimillionaire. He says. Now, obviously, this is going to get a lot of backlash. This this particular individual here, because, you know, hey, like, who are you to sort of pass a judgment, right? But then again, you know, he's just making sort of the observation. Hey, here's here's what the home looks like in Bucharest. Apparently, it's uh, uh, it says here a Norman Bates-inspired meat factory. Uh, and he, this, this BBC author argues that Andrew Tate uh, has a fictitious chain of casinos. His webcam empire is just two girls in an apartment, basically. And his home is basically like a meat factory. The person sounds a little biased. Note, the only reason I hit the like on this was so I could, eat, I could quickly go back to it for the purpose of, of uh, reviewing this because I just look at the like history, see tweets by Meet Kevin. Uh, just follow me on Twitter, at RealMeetKevin. You can see all these things yourself. I put them there as sort of just documentation of what we're seeing. So, uh, and, and this BBC author or uh, a journalist argues that the irony for Andrew Tate is in order to prove his claims about being fabulously rich, he will need to show us his money. But if he does, then the Romanian prosecutors are going, just going to uh, seize it, which they have. They've been seizing almost all of his assets. Uh, and, uh, so right here, this is where, uh, Paul Kenyon says, uh, this is what I couldn't tell you until today. We have the first British complainant 
against Andrew Tate, a former girlfriend who alleges violence and coercion. She is helping Romanian prosecutors with inquiries. Uh, and so apparently this is uh, the, the kind of individual who uh, uh, is, is potentially contributing uh, to why Andrew Tate is staying arrested. Again, that's led to a lot of anger, uh, like uh, this person here, pretty dang angry. We'll go ahead and play her clip here. And this is where I'd mentioned that one of the reasons, she, well, I mean, you'll listen to it yourself here. So let's, let's listen to why, why, why is she angry? Let's listen in. This is some sickness that you have two women, two women coming out and saying, and I've heard many, many, I've probably heard five or six or seven now, even interviews, conversations with Jasmina. She is coherent. She is intelligent. She says her piece. She has said repeatedly, I'm not a victim. They even asked her in one interview. They said, if evidence came out that you couldn't, you, you couldn't refuse, it was there, it was actual evidence, would you accept it? She said, yes. It's just not, that's just not what happened. I was living there. That is not my experience, my story. How dare a society, how dare a society accept one woman's statement as fact and ignore another woman's statement because you don't like one message and you want the other message on a pedestal. That is not how a legal system should operate. That is corrupt. Yeah, so, I mean, that's, uh, that's obviously a, a statement there that's designed to evoke emotion, right? Because if what she is saying is true, then of course that's not how a legal system is supposed to operate. But we don't know if what she is saying is true. We don't know if that's why the Romanian court uh, is, is extending the detention of Andrew Tate, right? So at this point, it seems like there are a lot of people on social media who will say anything in the world to defend Andrew Tate because the army of uh, Tate supporters love that. I tried my best to take a neutral stance. That means I'm probably going to, you know, some people aren't going to like that. But I'm just curious, like for me, I just want to see the evidence. Just show me the evidence. Then, then I can make my opinion. Uh, it, now, uh, obviously here, we're not expecting the attorney to opine about whether or not her clients are, are uh, uh, you know, actually uh, in trouble or have committed any kind of wrong. Obviously, we're not expecting that. So I want to be clear when I said she avoided that question. Uh, it's just, it, you know, it's, it was an interesting question by Piers Morgan is, is maybe the, the way to look at it. But obviously, that's, that's something that an attorney probably should dodge. But then again, a lot of attorneys will come out and say, I absolutely believe my clients are innocent, right? And she didn't take that opportunity. But anyway, let's listen to just a, a little bit more here and then we'll keep going. I think it's now crossed over to the point where it's violating international human rights law because the deprivation of, of your liberty pre-trial is the most severe form of punishment a state can impose. And that's what they've done in this case. And they've had a very lengthy investigation with the government's resources. They've been uh, analyzing and looked, looking at all of their devices since April when they seized everything. And here we are, February, and charges aren't filed. So I think there's absolutely no evidence that's been presented. And that's our position. Yeah, and again, uh, you know, this kind of goes on and it goes in circles about this idea of, hey, there's no evidence that's been filed yet. Obviously, and again, I want to just be very, very clear about this. Obviously, if tomorrow the Tate brothers get released and the remaining court's like, oh, yep, nope, never mind, we don't have anything, that'd be terrible. That would be so wrong. It would prove essentially his innocence and, and uh, the family's innocent. It would uh, hopefully restore 
humanity's faith in in uh, you know essentially the social media influencers because you know, they've got a pretty uh, you know pretty uh, uh, dare I say a volatile reputation in that you've got some folks believing every single word that they say and absolutely loving them and on the other side you've got people hating absolutely everything and generally when you have that kind of divisiveness you you kind of have almost like a Trumpian style environment where people will do anything for the person and people will do everything against the person. And then it's always a tough position to be in because ultimately I think uh, uh, a, a more balanced view and more nuanced view is necessary, but that's very difficult to convey on the internet, uh, the balanced support or criticism of someone. But anyway, uh, if uh, you know this detention continues as it's uh, a rumor that it will, that this trial may not actually complete until or, or really get going until May, Pape Brothers could be gone for quite a while. That's another three months away, and then you get into trial, and then we're going to be covering the evidence on that. The evidence is going to be quite interesting, so I'm very curious to see what that looks like, and we'll definitely be covering it. But at least at this point, all we know is we've got a court that's holding someone, no evidence yet, and we got a lot of people that are very pissed off, and a whole lot of other people who are like, finally, some justice uh, for women. We'll see. We'll see. Let's see here. I do not trust anything anymore. In the absence of truth, those with the most power define the truth. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing, too. There are a lot of reasons to be skeptical of things that have uh, happened. Okay, next. So, we've got to talk... Give me a second here. Let's listen to Bloomberg for a moment look at is why is it because uh, we're exporting more or is it because we're exporting less um, that's the real question and a lot of this has to do with the strength of the dollar as well it's been a long time since uh, the dollar started weakening and we should start seeing some of the effects of that uh, by US uh, exports rising a little bit more but it is a component of GDP and it was a component of GDP in the fourth quarter because these are December numbers so a stronger number uh, a strong fourth quarter may be a little bit weaker because the trade balance, uh, trade deficit is a little bit wider. This number doesn't necessarily move the needle like the one that we got on Friday, which definitely changed the narrative in a meaningful well <coughs> way, particularly for uh, Fed watchers. What are you expecting to hear from Fed Chair Jay Powell today, starting at 12.30 p.m. Eastern, when he addresses the reaction in markets and then the subsequent labor market report that was, to quote Tom, better than good? Uh, well, Jay Powell is a dignified um, public servant, and I don't think he'll stand up and say, yeah, 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 I was right. But basically, that's going to be the message. Um, the Fed is going to raise interest rates. The Fed is going to keep interest rates high. The Fed sees a much rockier path to 2% inflation and a soft landing than the markets have. And now the markets seem to be coming around to that view. So I think Powell will have a, this is a, an hour-long <clears throat> question session uh, about the Fed and what they do. But I think the message he will walk in with, already prepared, is we're going to stay the course. And that's the thing he will want people to take away from today. Help me with Michigan on, I believe it's Friday, on uh, February 10th as well. Will there be value, Michael McKee, to the Michigan Confidence Series, plural? Well, there's a little bit of value in the Michigan numbers on inflation. If people think inflation is still coming down, then that helps the Fed's case for uh, getting to 2%. Mm -hmm. uh, it is uh, 
opinion based in large measure on gasoline prices. So if gas prices hang in there, they, they've gone up a little bit, but if they hang in there at lower levels, it should continue to improve. Then the question is, what do people think of the economy? There isn't a direct link between the confidence numbers and spending, but there's an implied link. It, it's more co uh, coincident than anything else. And so if we see people getting more confident in the economy, then that suggests that maybe a recession's a little bit farther away. Michael McKee, thank you so much. Yeah, that's actually a really good point about this confidence in the economy. We're actually getting a lot of talk about that confidence in the economy, especially as how it relates to the housing market. So we've got to provide a little bit of a housing market update, specifically because this morning on CNBC, Neil Kashgari touched on the housing market, and he talked specifically about an article in the Wall Street Journal about signs that maybe the housing market was slightly starting to recover and how that could actually lead the Fed to have to keep financial conditions tighter again because they see that can, uh, consumer spending is heavily correlated to household wealth. And so is the jobs market. In fact, Neil Kashgari bantered back and forth with CNBC anchors this morning, suggesting that, hey, maybe, maybe it's entirely possible. The reason we saw a better employment report than we expected is because, may and we saw the labor force participation rate rise, is maybe some people who had retired, which usually retirement is relatively sticky, are now coming out of retirement and working a part-time job or whatever, and participating with uh, the labor market because they're starting to see their household net worth decline, whether that's through retirement accounts, exposed to the stock or bond market, or the real estate market softening, who knows? But this idea that maybe the real estate market hit some kind of bottom is very interesting. Now, it's worth noting what's happened with interest rates. Interest rates were about three, four months ago, were sitting at about seven to seven and a quarter percent. Right now, we're sitting closer to 6.1 to 6.4%. So you've really come down on mortgage rates. And as we know, when rates come down, buyer purchasing power increases. And this is why the Wall Street Journal, in part, is suggesting, hey, we're starting to see some potential thawing in the housing market. And now this is really interesting because the Federal Reserve pointed out this article. This is not me finding this article. The Fed talked about this article. Neil Kashgari, as we heard, or as CNBC, or during his interview on CNBC this morning, he mentioned this. And so the article talks about this decline in mortgage rates, having more people contacting real estate agents applying for mortgages and signing purchase contracts. Falling mortgage rates have beginning to stir demand or have been beginning to stir demand in the housing market. The average home loan has is come down by just about a full percentage point from its high above seven. This would be about seven and a quarter to about six and a quarter now, right? And it's bringing some new buyers into the market. Now this, on one hand, could potentially be aligning with the seasonal move that most people who are interested in buying real estate don't actually get serious about potentially buying real estate until January. And then they actually don't really start making offers until March. This is sort of your spring buying season, right? Most people buy in March, most people sell in July. It's kind of weird. You'd think maybe sellers would move that up a little bit, but that's statistically what, what we tend to see. <clears throat> now, Mortgage applications are up by a little bit. This also makes sense, again, because uh, rates are starting to fall. The housing market is a barometer for how the economy is responding to looser financial conditions. Look at the Fed. 
specifically pointing out this article that talks about, oh, financial conditions are loosening. And the Fed's like, no, we don't want financial conditions to loosen. Now, keep in mind, that did lead, and, and uh, the, the Federal Reserve's concerns about tighter financial conditions have actually led financial conditions to tighten slightly again, especially following that jobs report that we had. Just look at the uh, 10-year Treasury yield over the last uh, six months here. If you jump to the last six months, you'll actually see that we were sitting at a high on the 10-year treasury around four and a quarter to 4.3 in November, which is really about three months ago. Uh, and we fall into these lows for most of January. But if we zoom in a little bit here just to the last month, and I'll remove myself for a moment, you can actually see we've really spiked up to the highest level in the last month on 10-year treasury yields. Not quite yet, though, the highest levels that we've seen in the last three months. We'd have to get to about 3.8 to see that. But now we're sitting at about 3.66, so you are seeing at least some tightening again in those financial conditions as the 10-year treasury is really correlated to uh, housing interest rates, mortgage rates. The Fed has indicated they're committed to keeping rates high until inflation is lower, willing to risk a recession to do so. Uh, they, no matter what happens, it's likely to be a slow year for the housing market, suggests the Wall Street Journal. Housing activity remains down sharply from a year ago, and when the Fed began to lift its bet, or that's when they started raising rates and pushing up uh, uh, mortgage rates. Uh, and even though the S&P CoreLogic uh, Case-Shiller National Home Price Index is up 40% from three years ago, the housing market has been in its fifth straight month of declines and it's hitting specific areas, particularly hard, be it Austin or Idaho. And you're starting to see more builders try to rush inventory out to market to actually catch up to make sure they don't end up with even lower prices. Now, here's something that's fascinating. If you go over to the Redfin Data Center and you look at median home sales, this is for the entire nation, and we can go city by city in a moment here. But if you look at median home sales, you know that right now medium home, median home sales are sitting at around 347. They've actually declined a little bit already in January. Now that's not true for every market, but in just January, you've declined from about 350 to around 347. So about a 1% decline. But 347, if we hold at 347 until about, uh, oh, call it, uh, what do we have here, April? Yeah, if we hold until April or May, We'll eventually be comparing 347 to about 387 from year-over-year -year numbers. And if we look at 347, say prices stay stable, divided by 387, that's going to represent a national decline of real estate prices of about 10.5%. And that could lead to some potential panic where all of a sudden now homebuyers are hearing that home prices aren't actually rising anymore, but instead they're falling. And if that panic comes at the same time as more home builders list properties for sale, because we know existing homeowners are locked into low rates, they're not super interested in bailing out of the housing market. Well then, uh, but we do have the largest backlog of homes under construction that we've had since 2006. And if those homes start hitting the market, there's a potential you could see some real softness in the real estate market come spring and this summer, unless for some reason, the lowering of interest rates of 1% from 7.25% to 6.25% leads to some kind of real rise in prices again. And then those year-over-year -year numbers don't look as dramatic. I don't know. We'll see what ends up happening, but we can look at individual areas. For example, if we go to Austin, Texas, we can actually see you get this slight sort of tick up in home prices here in January. 
followed by a slight decline. So you do have a lot of volatility in these sort of four-week measures. But even right now, if we look at 460 right now relative to 571 where we were, you're looking at home prices that are already down 19.5% in Austin. If we go to Boise, and you can do this on the Redfin Data Center for any area you want, you can actually see that home prices feel like they're still plummeting. You're actually sitting at a 444 median versus the 547 peak a year ago, also sitting at about a 19% decline and still declining. However, if you go to, let's say, a San Diego, you can also see that Austin-style pickup in pricing here. And if you go to Tampa, Florida, you can also see that pricing is still year-over-year year higher, but it's sitting at about 357, started with a decline in the year. 357 is roughly, uh, it's actually lower than where we were at the end of last year, and it's well off that peak of 394. So let's see, 357 divided by 394 puts us at about 9.5% declines for Tampa. Now, if we can move up and catch up with this black line, which represents last year's data, hey, then you can actually potentially have a relatively flat real estate market with pricing this year, uh, and, and maybe you get less of sort of a fear movement. So it's very interesting what's happening. But it's also fascinating that the Federal Reserve is paying attention very closely to what's happening uh, to, to, uh, the, the, uh, to the interest rate market, especially since now a lot of people are suggesting, hey, look, if rates start trending down, let's just buy now, take advantage of those lower prices, and then we can always refinance in the future. Now, that's risky because that's what people said in 2007 and 8 was, oh, let's just buy a home now and we can always refinance in the future. Not necessarily, especially since you're starting to get tighter financial conditions starting to show up at lenders. A survey by uh, uh, the Federal Reserve of lenders are starting to indicate tighter conditions for real estate lending, whether it's commercial, residential, or credit card lending. So you are starting to see banks tighten up a little bit. We saw banks tighten up a lot during the Great Recession. How much will they tighten up now? Who knows? So far, they've only tightened up modestly. We'll see. Now, going on with the uh, Wall Street Journal article, uh, it actually ends talking about how pending home sales, a leading indicator for the housing market, rose 2.5% in December, led by gains in the South and the West. So what does this tell us? Well, it really tells us that we don't really know yet, right? We don't know what's going to happen. But as far as what I can tell, here's what I believe. I believe that you're by no means going to see a 2008-style housing market crash. The folks calling for that, I think, have lost their marbles because we are in a totally different uh, and fundamental uh, housing market now than we have been previously. Don't get me wrong. I know housing is expensive, and it'd be nice for housing to become less expensive for folks. Uh, that way, more people can get into home ownership, which I'm a big fan of. And those are things that I teach about in my programs on building your wealth. Link down below. And almost on a daily basis, I'm talking about building your wealth through real estate. But I don't believe we're going to have any kind of 30 to 50% declines like what we saw in the great financial crisis, specifically because the type of lending that we've had build up our housing market over the last 10 years has been extremely sound. Credit scores that are 100 points higher, no dead people getting loans, no, no income, no job, no asset loans. Instead, you have loans where people have to have the ability to repay. These are mostly fully amortized loans in America. People have locked in their low rates. There's no reason for them to dump out and move. Sure, you might see more people rather than selling rent out their properties, and that could put some pressure on rents, which might eventually put some pressure on valuations, but we've already seen the pressure on valuations. The real question now, and this is sort of the lingering question is, what is the likelihood 
that when we have those year-over-year Case-Shiller numbers come out and the national media starts talking about how, oh no, home prices have fallen 10%, 15%, 20% year-over-year, uh, and maybe in some markets they're still falling, what is that going to mean for uh, home buyer sentiment? And is it potentially going to reduce people's willingness to buy? Even a little bit, while at the same time you get a lot more housing inventory from new construction home builders, or potentially even real estate investment trusts like institutionals, uh, like uh, BlackRock, KKR, Black, whatever, right? The, the B REITs, these potentially liquidating real estate because they're suffering from so many withdrawal requests. That's possible, and it could lead to increases in inventory. Keep in mind, you could have stable uh, or low inventory, but if you have less buyers, at the same time as you have stable inventory, what happens? So think about that. Think about it logically for a moment. Less buyers, but low inventory. Well, if you have low inventory and then less buyers, your month's supply of homes goes up because even at a low inventory level, it takes you longer to sell that inventory because you have less buyers. But if now if you have less buyers and inventory goes up because of the builders or the REITs or whatever, uh-oh, now you have a real problem with weeks of supply of housing skyrocketing. And oh, look at this convenient chart here. That's literally exactly what's happening. Weeks of supply peaked at the end of November at about 15.8 weeks of housing supply. That's a very, very high level. That compares to 2021 when we were sitting at nine weeks of housing supply. Uh, that also compares to uh, earlier in the springtime of 2021 when we had eight weeks of supply. So we peaked at about 15 weeks of supply, which is about twice as much. But right now, the latest measure is that we are not at 15 at a peak of week supply. We are actually at 18.3. So week supply has doubled year over year. Uh, and if that continues to trend up, you're probably going to see more price drops across the nation. Now, the level of price drops, the number of active listings with price drops did fall into the close of the year. We were at a peak of about 7.1%. Price drops as people either canceled listings, removed listings at the end of the year. You get a lot of listings that expire at the end of the year. So it's very common to see some kind of listing reset at the end of the year. Those That listing reset pulled the percentage of active listings with price drops down to 4.6. But I think that's a temporary, ano temporary anomaly since most listing contracts are written to the end of the year. Uh, and now you're starting to see those take up again, right? Those price drops take up again. So the, the, we're not out of the woods at all for real estate. Not only do you have, like, let's try to summarize this, okay? Because I, I think it's worth considering a summary when we go through all of these sorts of um, data points here. The first thing is you have the Fed wanting to keep housing tight. The Fed wants housing tight. They mentioned it this morning. Neil Kashkari talked about it in an interview. That, hey, we're looking at this and, and we want it to remain tight. The other thing that's happening is the 10-year Treasury yield after the jobs report started increasing, right? We're back at about 3.6%. In my opinion, for us to really have the green light on, on housing, the green light on housing really comes when the 10-year Treasury is around 2.5%. We'll see. That's just my thesis. Could be wrong, but that's my thesis. Uh, the other thing that we've got is we've got uh, probably a massive wave of uh, of supply coming, not from your traditional home sellers, but from REITs, institutions, uh, and builders. That's where you're getting massive supply coming, and you're already seeing those indicators. You're already seeing uh, increases in months' supply, uh, and that is a that that measure is so nice, be nice because it includes 
it considers people buying less or more and inventory being up or down, right? It merges those together. So it's a really good indicator. You're seeing uh, median home prices a volatile, volatile for January. It's not a clear up everywhere, right? Some areas uh, are declining, some areas are rising. So you, you are seeing that and we'll wanna pay attention to that obviously. Uh, and uh, on top of that, we, we have no idea how is that fear wave come probably March to May for year over year numbers. Actually, it's probably gonna be more like March to July because the numbers are so delayed when they come out. How is that fear wave going to affect buyers? What's inflation going to be like at that point? There are a lot of uncertainties, but I would make it very clear, I don't see any signs of a 2008 style crash or recession. And as long as inflation continues to, to blow over, you're probably going to look at peak pain for real estate either it was in December of 2022, or that peak pain for real estate is going to be somewhere around uh, the summer of 2023 to about the end of 2023. The best case scenarios that we're seeing, at least based on what, what uh, professionals, uh, you know, like those interviewed by Barron's, uh, who work on the Case-Shiller indices are saying, is probably the best you're looking at is gonna be a flat year for 2023 real estate which I think is pretty interesting, especially as it relates to the housing startup that uh, that we're creating. Let me get you that Barron's piece quickly. So the Barron's piece on housing, yeah, here it is. So this was the Barron's piece. And uh, we think the housing market, let's see, uh, we think that housing market could help pull the economy out of recession in 2024, say these economists interviewed by Barron's. Inventories of completed homes are up completely. So that suggests that home builders are working through backlogs and they actually expect that discounting could start to rise in this spring and summer. And this sort of reiterates that, that potential bottom closer to, to spring or summer where you get sort of peak fear then as builders really start trying to liquidate homes. And keep in mind, they can drag down the resale market as well. Of course, everybody really does think that interest rates are going to be lower at the end of the year. So who knows? Maybe that's either the time to refinance or buy. And if that ends up being the time to refinance, boy, it might be an interesting opportunity to start looking at some of the lenders like a Rocket Mortgage or United Wholesale and maybe start making some investments into those sort of stocks, assuming there'll be a big refinance boom when and if real, estates do, uh, real estate rates end up uh, coming down. Now, another thing that I, I, I wanna mention is uh, just briefly, obviously many of you know uh, and, and many of you have been adding to your investments over the last uh, few few weeks here. Uh, many of you know I've got a housing startup. It's called HouseHack. You go to HouseHack.com, read the solicitation there. We expect to have the Reg A offering for that. Hopefully by, you know, like at this point it's looking like April. Uh, we're submitting to the SEC very soon here, I'm told within the next week. We'll see uh, when the attorney's ready. But uh, it's very, very exciting. And we've, uh, over the last few weeks, we've we found a model that we think could, could really allow us, and, and without going into too much detail here, could really allow us to go from buying wedge deals to buying wedge deals in multiple cycles. Uh, so that's really interesting because we think there's a lot of money to be made in buying wedge deals. The big problem is most people 
never end up realizing the profit from wedge deals because they spend it all on selling costs for realtors. Uh, they do stupid work for flips. They get sued. Uh, they don't retain any kind of management rights. They end up uh, s spending all their money on escrow fees and transfer costs and realtor fees. It's insane. And so we believe we found a model to where we can avoid all of that, but still be able to repeat the wedge deal model over and over again and turn that into cash flow for the company. Uh, so we're really excited about that. Uh, and uh, right now we are uh, obviously raising money at a one-to-one -one valuation for house hack, which we think is a, an incredible steal. If you're an accredited investor, you can invest now and you get some additional warrants. And if you're not accredited, stay tuned, but we're very excited. Uh, we'll have a full uh, projection set when we launch the Reg A. So you'll actually be able to see the projections that we're looking at. We didn't do projections with the uh, first offering uh, for accredited investors. But, but now we've, we've nailed down some projections and they're very, very exciting. So I can't wait to share more insight on that. So that gives you a little bit of an update there on House Hack and my thoughts on the housing market. Now we've got to talk a little bit more about the actual stock market. But first, let's take a look at uh, how things are moving right now. All right, how are things moving right now in the pretty market? I'm kind of curious, and then we'll go ahead and hop into some data. So 10-year treasury is still sitting at about 3.657. You've got the NASDAQ's basically flat. Uh, Tesla's up about two-thirds of 1%. What are the big movers here? You've got Cleverleaf Holdings and IronNet up 3 to 13, or 7 to 13%. You've got Bed Bath & Beyond down 37%. Blink Charging is down 11 C3AI is down a bit. You know, what we should do is do a brief analysis on Bed Bath & Beyond because it's quite ridiculous. But let's, let's do a brief analysis here. Stand by. Bed Bath & Beyond, absolute and complete disaster. And it shows you the danger of investing in momentum movers and actually trying to hodl momentum movers. Now look, I'm not here to bag on Bed Bath & Beyond. I like my 20% off coupons as much as the next person. And I grew up as a millennial going to Bed Bath & Beyond and buying, you know, OXO stuff and the KitchenAid mixers, you know, and the towels. They always had so much inventory of towels. It was so cool. I want that color this season and that color. That's I miss the good old days of retail stores and Bed Bath and Beyond. It's nostalgic. It's it's just as nostalgic as being in line at GameStop for the midnight release of every single version of World of Warcraft, okay? Or Splinter Cell, okay? It didn't matter what midnight release it was. Call of Duty, I was there. It reminds me of the good old days of Black Friday where there's so many people in the store you felt like you were on a Japanese subway and you were about to suffocate to death because there were so many people there. Or you were in a South Korean alley. Okay, no, too soon for that. So anyway, we, look, we, we gotta know what's going on with Bed Bath & Beyond because the darn stock ran up almost a double. And one of the biggest warnings that I've had is when it comes to momentum-based stocks, and we know this, as soon as the momentum goes away, the stock falls. It's very simple. And the goal though is to trade that, right? So what happens is you get volume increases, the stock skyrockets. When the volume goes away, the stock falls. It's the simplest trade ever. The problem is people will hold on to their trade because they think, oh, we're in the next momentum wave. But the companies that are facing profitability problems or they're becoming a penny stock, or, which basically uh, Bed Bath & Beyond has become because they're facing bankruptcy, these companies need to raise money. 
So here's a company that actually did the smart thing. They actually are now trying to take advantage of the meme movement. And so as their stock ran up 92% yesterday, what does the company do? Oh, no surprise. They conduct an offering. This is what I've been warning for months. Be careful about getting into profitless companies. There's a reason that I say that the companies you wanna pay attention to are companies with high free cash flow. You want stable revenues, even, even in the face of discounts, right? And you want ideally strong margins. Those are the companies you want, in my opinion, to invest in. Now, this isn't personalized financial advice for you. I don't know what your situation is, but I am a licensed financial advisor. I run an ETF uh, and I do this stuff for a living on a daily basis. And the big concern about putting a lot of your money into companies that don't have high free cash flow, that are losing money and don't have strong margins is the potential that you're just going to get diluted so that way the company can stay alive just a little bit longer. And that's exactly what Bed Bath & Beyond did. Yesterday, they basically announced a near $1 billion Series A convertible stock offering in warrants. The company expects to raise $225 million of gross proceeds uh, uh, from the offering together with another 800 mil from the issuance of securities related to their warrants. Now, this is basically to say they're going to their company, to, the, to their stock, and they're saying, hey, look, our company has a market cap of $700 million after a meme rallied up nearly double from $350 million approximately. Why don't we just raise a billion dollars, which is more than our market cap, and as long as we get investors, hey, maybe it can help us avoid bankruptcy. And what are we going to do with that money? Well, we're going to buy some inventory, we're gonna make sure we pay off the inventory debts that we owe, like using this $100 million to pay off our first in last out facility. We're going to pay off the outstanding loan facility that we have under our ABL facility, whatever, it's like a credit line, right? Uh, we're going to make payments on the missed interest payments on the notes that we have that are due March 3rd. And maybe we'll have some money over to prevent us from going into bankruptcy, but no guarantees. If we can't raise this money, we might still end up going bankrupt. So anyway, what they're basically doing is they're pulling an AMC. They're taking every meme investor and momentum investors money. And they're basically saying, hey, thanks for buying our stock. We're now going to dump on you and we're gonna make you lose the money that you're now being a bag holder on basically. And we're gonna use that to try to bail out our own company. This is basically the same exact thing that AMC did with APE. And yeah, sure, AMC has been rising recently, but when we zoom out, we, we can clearly see what's been happening with AMC. The trend is not great. Now, AMC is doing their best to pay off their debt, but they're doing so with your money as an investor in the company, as an investor in a company who's losing, the company is losing money, they will take the equity you provide to them and the liquidity you provide to them in the stock market and use that to pay off debts. This is what companies do that lose money. And this is why I prefer companies that have free cash flows, positive operating margins, uh, po a positive operating leverage. They can increase their, their revenue or keep revenue stable while maybe reducing OPEX, right? Or uh, growing OPEX at a lower rate. And Bed Bath & Beyond is not that. Look at this. This is a company that has net sales ending in the quarter, November 26th, of $1.25 billion. The sales at Bed Bath & Beyond have plummeted by about a third. Look at that. 
12.59 divided by 18.77, that puts you at a decline of about 33% in sales. So sales are falling 33%. Their gross margin uh, or their costs of goods sold sits somewhere at 78%. Nearly 78% of every dollar they make is going into actual costs of product. But then they've got this insane operating expense uh, where they actually end up with an operating loss of around $450 million, net income here loss of about nearly $400 million. They're losing money like crazy. And if we jump on over to their cash flow statement, let's see what they got. We got the balance sheet over here, which we could look at it in just a moment. If we look at their cash flow statement. Here's their net loss, and their actual cash flow is negative. 307 million minus an additional 100 mil in CapEx, you're sitting at around negative $400 million in cash flow for folks. The three months ended in November. If you go to their negative cash flow for the last nine months, I believe this is, this is negative cash flow. Yeah, nine months ended November. Their negative cash flow is actually 890 plus 322. Their negative cash flow in nine months is $1.2 billion. Oh, look, that's literally three times their current negative cash flow. So they're literally losing $400 million a quarter. $400 million a quarter divided by 90. This company is literally throwing out the window $4.4 million a day. That's what this company is burning, just trying to stay alive. It makes absolutely zero fundamental sense that the company would rally at all on anything other than just stupid momentum trading on a penny stock. That's all this is. And so it's no surprise that when there was stupid momentum trading on a penny stock with, with a, you know, a small market cap and low liquidity in the share price, because who in their right mind is actually buying this to hold it? It's no surprise that when the company issues a suggestion that, hey, we're going to try to raise a billion dollars and we're going to dilute all our shareholders, it's no surprise that the sucker falls uh, nearly uh, over 40%. Now, it's remarkable because some people who don't understand math very well will say, but Kevin, it's up 92%. Now it's, now it's down 40. That means it's still up more, right? Uh, no, that's actually not how it works. See, we're sitting over here at $3.50 and the sucker memes up nearly double. But if you double and then you lose half, you're basically at the same spot, right? I mean, think about it. If you have a $5 stock and it doubles, you're at $10. If you now fall by half, you're right back at five. <laughs> Math is fun. Anyway, it is absolutely ludicrous that anybody would touch Bed Bath & Beyond stock with with any more than a complete speculative mindset. And when you look at a company like Bed Bath & Beyond, you should run. The sucker's going bankrupt and it doesn't have assets like Hertz. People look at these bankrupt companies and they think these bankrupt companies are gonna kill it like Hertz did post-bankruptcy. But people forget that the reason Hertz did well post-bankruptcy is because they had assets that were going up in value, not down in value. They had used cars during the used car shortage. And guess what that meant? It shot the asset value of Hertz to the moon. So of course companies went in to bid the crap out of Hertz because they had a lot of good product. Used cars that became substantially more valuable than the original estimates uh, for what, uh, what the assets were worth at Hertz. So Hertz ends up 
Meme stocking up through bankruptcy recovers from its restructuring and because they have all this inventory and these incredible buyouts and then they end up with new management that actually gets into leasing electric vehicles and they rebuild the used uh, or the, the leasing business and they get new inventory after selling out their old inventory at a profit, it's no surprise the company does well after bankruptcy. That is very different from Bed Bath & Beyond. The, according to Bloomberg, the executives had a meeting with all their staff and guess what the executives said to help solve their problems? They're like, we need more corporate staff. Instead of working from home, we need you all coming in an extra day. And somebody yells out in the audience, like picture this, okay? I picture this as sort of, you got like a table of executives, like, all right guys, we're gonna try to save the company. And in doing so, less work from home, more in person, face to face time. And, and then you get the people in the audience that are like, somebody shouts out allegedly, somebody shouts out and goes, working, coming in one more day is not going to make our company not lose money. And apparently the audience, like the other employees at the company start nodding and, and basically cheering and clapping like, yeah, exactly, like right on. Like, why don't you actually fix the damn company? And the reality is Bed Bath & Beyond is a failure. Bed Bath & Beyond is a Sears. It failed to adapt. It failed to pull a Best Buy. Now that's my opinion, okay? Best Buy used to be a fantastic store, a great competitor against Circuit City. Then their return policy started turning to crap and their customer service went to trash. The company started failing. The company was going and trending towards bankruptcy. They were going to become the next Circuit City and they were going to go bankrupt. But guess what, Bed, or, uh, what Best Buy did? They realized, wait, we need to loosen our return policies. We need to get into e-commerce and we have to focus on better customer service. And guess what? Best Buy is a success story. They turned it around. You could buy stuff online on their website. Their inventory management system is even better than Walmart's. Walmart's is trash. Walmart tells you they have stuff in stock and then they don't. Then they cancel your order a few hours later. Like, sorry, you don't actually have it in stock. It's like your website says we have it in stock. Yeah, our systems aren't aligned with what we actually have online versus what we actually have in store. And I'm like, this is like an elementary problem. Y'all are idiots. Uh, but that's Walmart for you. Best Buy, and Walmart doesn't even make that much money. There's no reason, like their stock should plummet. There's no reason their stock's doing as well as it has been over the last year. The only reason it has been doing so well is because it's deemed a staple and people move into staples in a recessionary time. So you're basically getting trader momentum in Walmart. Anyway, uh, and it's trend momentum too. Anyway, Best Buy adapted. Best Buy became a functional online e-commerce platform that you can actually use Best Buy as a competitor to Amazon. You could price match with Amazon, you could get your product same day, which you can't do with Amazon, and they really sell you on those services. Now, I'm not saying you need to use those and I've never used them myself, but now you buy a TV at Best Buy, they'll come install it for you. They'll do the mount for you. Wanna buy an appliance? Why would you buy it on Amazon? If you could go have Best Buy do it all for you, start to finish and install it for you and make it all easy for you. Want to buy a surround system for your home? Why buy it on Amazon where you have to figure out what all the damn wires do when you could just hire Geek Squad to do it for you? It's actually very, very smart. Amazon's been trying to get into it by subcontracting to local vendors, but it's been very difficult for Amazon to actually pull off successfully. And they've kind of been winding back that program because it's been hard for them. Whereas Best Buy actually has local employees who can do it for you. It's pretty impressive, but it shows you how different a company like Best Buy is from a loser like Bed Bath & Beyond. I hate to say it, but that is what it is. So I don't know, that's, that's my shtick on Bed Bath & Beyond and the ripoff 
uh, uh, that's happening in sort of the momentum world and why if you are FOMOing because you see certain momentum stocks that are going up like 30% and the quality companies that you're investing in are going up like four or 5%, right? You should be looking at those meme stocks and going, thank you. Because eventually when meme stocks run up, the quality companies come up and then the meme stocks get diluted and they plummet and crash and burn. So uh, think about it as a good thing. Oh, moving on. I always get so agitated with some of these things. <laughs> uh, all right, so now we got to talk a little bit about supply chains. Uh, let's talk supply chains. Give me a standby. Supply chains. I like talking about supply chains. I think it's important. Mm -hmm. Now we got to talk about supply chains. Look, supply chains are the biggest concern that people have that we are going to face the Michael Burry double dip recession. Is the Michael Burry double dip recession going to happen? Consider what's happening in the environment from not only the perspective of earnings calls, but also the perspective of companies like Goldman Sachs and institutional bankers looking into supply chains. And that's what we're going to do in this right now. Let's go ahead and start by looking at Goldman Sachs estimates for supply chains and where we sit with supply chains. Then we'll look at some other information because again, if supply chains end up getting congested again because we have a Chinese reopening or people continuing to spend more money, like American Express saying that premium customers are spending through the recession. People are using and taking up more personal loans at SoFi to support their spending. People are probably using a firm more than ever, especially Gen Z, because they're stupid and haven't been educated that you should not use buy now, pay later. And don't get me wrong. I've been a fan in, the, in a bull market of buy now, pay later services. I think it is stupid to use them, but I don't think that stupid people watch my channel, okay? I think using buy now, pay later is generally stupid. You should not use it. And if you've used it before, hey, maybe there's a reason, well, one-off time, it makes sense, okay? I'm not trying to offend people here, I'm just saying, it's stupid. You should pay off your debts every single month for consumer goods, guaranteed. That's different, obviously, if you buy a house. You should really never pay off your real estate unless you're going into retirement. Uh, ideally, you want to pay off equipment like uh, like a car, right? Ideally, you want to pay that off because it'll restrict you to buying a less expensive car and it'll let you buy more real estate, right? But of course, if you're a company that buys equipment like machinery and you finance it, that's a little different, right? That's part of your cost of goods sold. Uh, but anyway, when it comes to buy now, pay later, it's a riot. You shouldn't use it, but people do. And so people are supporting their spending like crazy. And there's the thesis that all it's going to take is China reopening, and that's it. As soon as China reopens, boom, we're going to turn inflation back on. But the reality is that's not what's happening. In fact, Starbucks thinks, which has just basically doubled the amount of stores that they have in China, they see the Chinese reopening as gradual. But not only does Starbucks see the reopening as gradual, but Goldman Sachs tells us the following. Goldman Sachs supply chain congestion scale. This was released yesterday evening, and they show us at a level of two out of 10. 10 being a full bottleneck, one being fully open. Two is the congestion scale that they put us at for supply chains. On a weekly bottleneck scale, our weekly bottleneck scale remained at two this week as the absolute level of congestion index declined 14.5%, exhibit one. Let's look at exhibit one for a moment. This is exhibit one, our weekly composite of supply chains. This is basically a chart showing you that right now, supply chains are as bottlenecked as they were August of 2020. In other words, 
barely bottlenecked at all. We had a massive skyrocketing in the chart in uh, uh, early 2021, and then a serious uh, bottlenecking at the end of 2021. And this is what led to the insane inflation. That has almost all but gone away. So if you are looking for a disinflationary argument, my friends, it is the supply chain congestion gauges. The supply chains are not muddying up. And notice how even over here, the first few weeks of January, which would encompass the Chinese Lunar New Year, there's no pickup. The opening has been very gradual in China, at least in terms of good spending. So what are the Chinese spending on? Well, I actually read uh, the, the, the I try to read Chinese news coverage because, well, first of all, it's like really biased uh, and they try to really talk up what's going on in China. So you have to be really careful. In general, you want to be skeptical of all the mainstream media you're listening to. But when I read news in China, you know what they're talking about, what the Chinese are spending money on? Travel, baby. Travel and entertainment and leisure. They're traveling like freaking nuts. And that's great because it's not murkying up supply chains at all. Which, again, and we've talked about this, I just want to reiterate it. The, the expectation, according to Nomura Research, is that supply chains are going to lead, or, or the, uh, the reopening of China, I should say, is going to lead to a $700 billion set of spending. That compares to about the $2.1 trillion of excess savings we had in the United States for our reopening. But keep in mind, China has like four to five times the population that we have. So when you actually calculate this out on a per capita basis, the United uh, people in the United States had an extra $6,000 of money to spend thanks uh, in the reopening. The Chinese, on average, have an extra $500 to spend. And so far, what are they spending it on? Travel. And we're not actually seeing supply chains back up. In fact, listen to this. Y'all remember all those complaints about ships being stuck off the coast of the Port of Los Angeles and having to wait months just to basically disembark their crap? Well, look at this. The number of container ships waiting to dock and unload goods along the entire West Coast has remained at zero for the 10th consecutive week. And the East Coast backlog has declined from 17 to 22. Let's see, that's exhibit six. I wanna see exhibit six. Exhibit six is here. Wow, look at that complete collapse of backlogs of ships. Even though there's still a backlog of 17 ships on the East Coast, that is down from a backlog of over 100 ships last summer. And it is following a very similar path, albeit a little bit delayed from the uh, West Coast uh, uh, declines. It's following a very similar plummet of the backlog just disappearing. This is a fantastic piece, by the way, by Goldman Sachs. Shout out to y'all at Goldman Sachs. Uh, encouragingly, chassis dwell times fell 23%. These are like the things that hold uh, containers for semi-trucks. Uh, wait times or dwell times fell 23% week on week on average. You have a loosening of, of uh, congestion at ports. You also have ocean container shipping rates down 90% in the past year. January's bottleneck scale is down 75%. You've got uh, labor and equipment availability improving. Look at this, labor folks labor availability is improving. What have I been saying? No wage price spiral. 
Starbucks, Chipotle finding it easier to retain workers, finding it easier to uh, 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 not only retain workers, but find new workers. This stands in the face of the argument that we are running into a massive wage price spiral. It stands in the face of that. Now, don't, worry, don't, don't get me wrong. This was a problem back in, uh, in, in, uh, at the beginning of 2022. The wage price spiral was a severe concern. Uh, and that is essentially that wages were rising at a level higher than the rate of inflation. And the belief was that that could continue. Uh, and that's scary. We don't want that to happen. Uh, so, but thankfully, so far, it does not seem like uh, we are seeing that issue, uh, at least not uh, here on the Goldman Sachs piece. So that's great. Uh, and uh, it's also not what we're seeing in earnings calls. Let's keep going here on this for a moment, see if there's anything else that's uh, really fantastic. We've got uh, BNSF intermodal traffic down 15% this week, minus 17% year over year for last week. Note that initial January intermodal traffic has decelerated versus December levels. We've got uh, rail intermodal traffic down, 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 down relative to last year. We have, what do you hear? This is chassis dwell times. They basically chart all the, the stuff that they summarized at the beginning. So they give us all the various different uh, charts showing container weighted average dwell time plummeting for San Pedro Bay, rail container wait time plummeting, rail container wait time down at about five days. Uh, which uh, which is w basically in line with the lows that we've seen over the last couple of years. Big three West Coast port inbound loaded containers down 20% year over year. We're in the negative area. Door-to-door -door shipping days plummeting down to 52. Still not at the lows of about 40 that we saw in 2019, but uh, trending towards that direction here. Manufacturing supply delivery times plummeting. Basically, the supply chains are strengthening, while at the same time supply chains are strengthening, we're not seeing companies complain about actually things getting worse, and we're not actually seeing this idea that, oh, there's going to be so much goods demand again that we're going to murk up supply chains again. If anything, most companies are telling us that we're probably not going to end up getting this big boom of spending again uh, until probably the second half of the year. In other words, you might have another complete six months to go before we end up getting, uh, a, a, you know, supply chains that maybe would even face the risk of higher demand. Uh, and uh, another six months of these supply chains repairing. Hey, you know what? That's not bad. <laughs> that 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 is good, especially since we're seeing this incredible plummet uh, already of, uh, of uh, supply chain tightness, and this is very good. But in addition to that, you're also seeing slowing warehouse construction as well as an inventory pickup at retailers. Now this I thought was very interesting. You have uh, Walmart inventory uh, level uh, levels up 12.5% year over year in the third quarter. In 2022, on average, inventory levels were up 25%. Uh, and so you still, even going into the fourth quarter, see companies that have more inventory than they've previously had before. And what's this leading to? It's leading to lower orders. It's the same thing the chip manufacturers are telling us. They're telling us, look, we're not actually seeing this inventory really get drawn down and leading to new orders just yet. Even Energizer Batteries was telling us, look, we're not getting as many orders as we used to because we think companies like Target and Walmart are basically just going through their inventory more. So they're not reordering batteries from us. 
It's the same thing that you're seeing warned at companies like AMD or IBM or, or what you're seeing at even a company like Tyson Meats. I mean, I just went through batteries, chips, and meats. Look, well, let's look at these, uh, a few of these, just so you can see uh, what I'm talking about. But we go to Tyson Meat, for example. What does Tyson tell us from their earnings call yesterday? Well, Tyson tells us that meatpacking executives thought that chicken would need to fill an expected gap in overall meat supplies. In other words, in this Reuters piece that sort of summarized what was happening in earnings for, uh, for, for Tyson Meat, we ended up seeing companies think, oh, we're, we're going to have to invest a lot in our supply chains. There's going to be so much meat. Uh, the meat's going to get so large. Our backups, you know, like the demand for meat's going to be huge. Everybody's going to want meat. It's going to be so much pee-pee and meat. And uh, here, what ended up happening was the CEO says, we ended up getting hit in the mouth in Q1 because of all of the protein on the market. Q1 is, is, their, is basically our calendar Q4. And so beef production was surprisingly high, leaving Tyson to resell excess chicken at a discount and spend money moving it. So it's, you've got batteries complaining about less battery demand. You've got meat complaining about less demand uh, for meat. Uh, and you've even got companies like AMD uh, investing a billion dollars into supply chains. Here's Lisa Sue, one billion dollars going into supply chains in 2022, and now they're talking about having done a very good job in supply chain and risk mitigation. We don't believe we have risks to supply chain issues because of future COVID outbreaks. And as it relates to the Chinese recovery, I think we're going to benefit from the Chinese recovery. And essentially, they go on to suggest that, hey, look, we don't think we're going to have new supply chain interruptions. We in invested a lot of money into better and stronger supply chains. And we actually are excited about the reopening of China because we're ready to meet that demand. This goes back to my scrunchie of a rubber band example that the companies are saying, hey, we're ready. We're ready to go. It's the same thing as Taiwan Semiconductors who has a substantial set of new equipment from ASML, but they're actually not running at full capacity. They're not running at full capacity because they don't have the kind of demand they were hoping to get. In fact, you look at even uh, uh, IBM and they tell you the same thing. IBM is telling you exactly the same thing. Like we're ready to meet the new demand, but we're not at that level yet where we have the demand relative to the amount of supply that we have. And that's actually a really great thing because it says that supply chains are built up and ready to support a boom in spending again. And that's fantastic because there are so many people that are so worried that inflation is going to keep running and running and running. And the reason it's going to keep running and running and running is because as soon as people across the board start going to spend again, that's it. Inflation's going to go to heck and we're all screwed. Uh, I personally don't believe that. I'm not of the believer that uh, the reopening of China is going to do much at all uh, for inflation. And I think if anything, the reopening of China, uh, what it really does is it, it it leads to what a lot of companies are calling for. Uh, and what a lot of companies are calling for is a very strong second half. Almost every earnings call, and I don't know if they're just punting, that that is a risk, who knows, maybe they're just punting. But it seems to me like every company that I've been reading into, whether it's it's Hershey, it's the chip makers, it's uh, the gaming companies, it's Pinterest, it's the advertisers, it's Google, it's Apple, doesn't matter. Almost every single company I look at, even Procter & Gamble, uh, you name it, most companies are telling us that we expect inventory or sales to recover in the second half of the year and we're ready to meet that demand. That's fantastic. 
we're in a fantastic place in terms of supply chains moderating right before the hope that in the second half of the year, things are going to get better. And that's at least how I'm investing. I'm investing in the belief that we're not going to have this massive, crazy second wave of inflation. Now, you don't have to agree with me. That's just what I'm doing. But here's just another example. I mean, people, just to show you how nervous people are, uh, there was this belief that Russian aluminum was going to get banned uh, and, and that nobody was going to be able to buy Russian aluminum. What ended up actually happening is the United States government came out and put a 200% tariff on Russian aluminum, which basically means if you sell aluminum for 100 bucks, the United States is going to tax you $200. So now all of a sudden that aluminum costs you $300, right? Instead of $100 for per whatever unit of aluminum you're buying. So initially people were like, oh my gosh, this is going to lead aluminum prices to skyrocket. Well, guess what actually happened? Aluminum prices fell. Why did aluminum prices fall? Because traders thought aluminum was just going to get outright banned from Russia. So as usual, markets are looking at things from this worst case scenario point of view, and they're not really looking at the reality. Uh, uh, keep in mind, Russia is the second largest aluminum producer. China is number one. Uh, before the Russia-Ukraine conflict, Russia represented about 10% of United States aluminum imports. Now Russia is doing about 3% of U.S. aluminum imports, so you're still seeing that. The EU banned Russian oil to cut its reliance on, on Russia. Now, of course, they're coming back with sort of price caps, right? Uh, uh, and, and Russia is obviously, there's a big arbitrage opportunity for countries like China and India and all that sort of stuff. But the point is, across the board, when we look at supply chains and the disruptions that are feared relative to what's actually happening, it's just not that bad. Uh, so pretty incredible, in my opinion. So uh, let's see here. Steve suggests here the second wave of inflation will happen. It may not happen for a year or two, but it's coming. I mean, what you're doing if you're suggesting that the second wave of inflation is definitely going to happen is you're really suggesting that the great moderation, the, the pattern of the last 40 years is broken. And essentially, we, we can't rely on the deflation uh, that we saw over the last 40 years because that's it. We've, we've let the genie of inflation out of the bottle and it's going to come back. Uh, and, and Steve, you're not wrong to say that, yes, the EV markets are going to create supply chain uh, disruptions. You're not wrong about that. But Steve, we should take this over to the course member live stream which is where we are heading right now. If you want to join me in the course member live streams, ask questions directly uh, with me. We can talk real estate, talk stocks, whatever. Make sure to join those programs on Building Your Wealth, link down below. Thank you so much as usual for listening. This is the Meet Kevin Report number 16. And we will now enjoy the opening bell with course members. Good luck out there. NASDAQ is just about flat. Let's hope for some green shoots today and a dovish Powell. I will be back to a public live stream at 1240 p.m. Eastern time. Thanks for watching. We'll see you soon.